Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God, does not believe God, has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is a side note of how do you determine whether or not our culture is in a state of moral decay or whether it's a godly culture. The, the one that I uh, have been told is, is a great metric is, what do you call childbearing? Uh, that, that phrase, we don't call it childbearing, we call it reproduction. And that if, is a factor, it, it's a factory term. 
you reproduce according to a template, rather than the phrase procreation. Uh, and, and today, women's health issues are, are used as a word to describe the sickness of pregnancy uh, rather than the blessing of procreation. And so I am very happy and excited to see so many young families in our church getting ready to have little kiddos. We call them kiddos in our... When you're married, you'll, you'll probably find out that as you're married, before you have your first, you start dreaming together of the kiddos to come. So we call them kiddos. I'm excited for your kiddos. So today we are, are ending our series on uh, first, or well, on the writings of John. We did not cover all of John's writings, but rather we have covered a segment or a short amount of them. We've covered the Gospels in a, a um, summary way, here and there, looking at different things during the season of Lent. Lent is a time where we, before God, acknowledge our weakness and frailty. And so likewise, in that place, we are ready to and need to see God's power. And so we were looking at Jesus's miracles in the book of John. And in that uh, study of John's writing, we've been noting the overarching theme, John's most often used metaphor and system of, of uh, illustration as being light and darkness. And indeed, we've seen that this is more than just literary device. This is true spiritual reality in the way that God has made the world. Uh, light and darkness, blindness and sight are true spiritual realities. When John is uh, recording Nicodemus going to, to Jesus, it's said of Nicodemus that he goes at night. Why does he go at night? Because he, a member of the Pharisees, is one who is still in darkness. Now he's coming to Jesus who says of himself that he is the light of the world, but he is still in darkness. At that point, Jesus says to Nicodemus, upon discussing the necessity of being born again, he says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? The idea being that Nicodemus, who is in sin, does his sinning at night. He goes under the cover of darkness to seek out Jesus, being afraid of the Jews for seeking uh, Jesus openly. And so, Likewise, we noted in, in John's miracle, the recording of uh, the man born blind, Jesus at the end of that uh, story, that the end of that narrative, is confronted by the Jews and they say to him, are we also blind? And Jesus says to them, because that you say, you see. Jesus takes their question and he says, your questioning in spirit is not a question, but rather it's an assertion of your own righteousness. Because you say that you see, you are blind and your darkness remains. If, if you would have recognized your blindness, then I could have done something about it. And so this is the metaphor that, that we've been looking at. Light, darkness, uh, blindness, and sight. And then we saw in Revelation, uh, John is, is taken up into heaven and he sees Jesus as one who is on fire. His feet are full of burnished bronze. They are extremely hot. They're glowing. They're emanating, radiating heat and light. And also Jesus himself is one who is holy. He is one who is at the throne of God. Even Jesus' eyes in that passage we saw, they are full of fire. So Jesus is obviously uh, being shown here as the glorified, ascended, reigning Son of God, the King of Kings, who is the true fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of old. And it's, it's all revealed through the metaphor and the pattern 
and the, the phraseology of light and darkness. And so, um, likewise, this has been our theme. And as we've been looking at this theme, my desire for you is so that you will come to the knowledge that the scriptures are the greatest form of literature ever wrought upon the earth and that in that place, the spiritual capacity for the Holy Spirit to enlighten you as to their meaning will be heightened. You will never get additional revelation from the Holy Spirit through the scriptures if you are never in the scriptures. So rather than attempting to fleshly just say, okay, I'm really going to read my Bible this year, I want to take you from deadness into life to the point where you love reading the scriptures because what you see is better than Lord of the Rings, Avatar, Iron Man, etc., etc., and I, I believe I'm firmly convinced in my own life because I used to be in a place of I hated reading the Bible. The Bible was boring, etc., to the place where the greatest literature, the greatest source of my uh, not entertainment, but but thrill, thrill the 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 way that God has made us. We we have a capacity and a desire to hear amazing stories that the scriptures alone can be that for you. And the framework of understanding uh, of, that is required to appreciate the scriptures in their beauty is to be aware of those types of things. So throughout all of my teaching, I'm trying to inspire you, not just how to read in terms of dissecting arguments, which I think is important, especially for the epistles, but also to see the meta themes. Jesus is the light of the world. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to us, you are the light of the world. What happens when Jesus is in Revelation? He holds the stars in his hand. What did God say to Abraham? Your descendants who are going to be a blessing to all the earth are going to be like the stars in the heavens. You and I are being spoken of as the fulfillment of Abraham's promise, the promise to Abraham from God. And so these things are to be understood, they're to be sought after, they're to be searched out. God has concealed beauty in his scriptures and it is up to us to dig for the gold and find it. So that being said, um, this is going to be our last Ser uh, sermon in this short, uh, loose series of John's writings. I'm actually going to be uh, stepping away from the pulpit for a series of a few weeks, um, right until uh, Right State ups, uh, starts up again. So that being said, um, let's get into it today. We want to look at four things in this chapter. Finally, God's commandments. Uh, then the Son of God, Jesus, uh, Jesus is described in this passage as the only Son of God, and the confirmation that John gives as an apostle for Jesus' true testimony, both his own personal testimony that he is the Son of God, as well as what John is saying are the um, spiritual realities behind the facts. And we'll see what that means in a second. We're going to look at the confidence and faith that has been a major theme in John's epistle here. He wants to give confidence to the young believers. He wants to shame and expose and demonstrate as wicked those who have false confidence, those who have the confidence in themselves. And so we've been noticing how John is warring against both the Gnostics, but it becomes more clear in this chapter that he's also warring against the Judaizers. And so the confidence that we have 
is based upon, as we saw last week, a Trinitarian foundation. That is, the Father has sent the Son, the Spirit has been given, and the Son of God has come into the world. That Trinitarian foundation is reiterated again in a different way and a number of applications. And we're going to see uh, what that is. <clears throat> it is a it is a sin to read your Bible and to pray in order to earn righteousness before God. But in responding to that possible error, it is a sin to stop reading your Bible and stop praying. And so it, Christian ethics, the, the morality that Christ teaches is a heart centered, it's a, it's a heart revealing morality. It's a set of ethics, it's a set of principles that say you, you must do this thing, but also you have to do it in the right motive with the right attitude being supplied by the Spirit. And so we're going to look at what John says concerning reading the scriptures, praying in this chapter, and then also the other forms of assurance, that is our, our progressive sanctification through life as a way to know that we are true children of God. And then finally, we're going to touch on um, this really weird ending to the book. It seems like John is talking about all these things, and then he never mentions idolatry, and then he says at the end, little children, guard yourselves from idols. So we're going to see why that's such a weird ending and what um, it means. So John summarizes the previous chapter. Of course, he's not writing down the chapters and verses. Those were added later. But John summarizes his previous argument in 1 John 5, 1 and 2. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The last chapter, you remember John and throughout the whole book, John has been talking about those who are the children of God versus the children of the devil. He says, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever ha who has been born of him. We saw that, that the love of God the Father is only possible because we believe in the Son. And in loving the Father, God has dispensed his love in order that that vertical love that is from God to us would become the love from us to our brothers and sisters, a horizontal love, if you will. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So at this point, John is saying, we know that we love God when we keep his commandments, but the question might be, what are God's commandments? When Jesus is asked this question, he says, the, the, the two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with, our, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means every area and dimension of your life is required to be, it's required in that dimension of life to be demonstrated that you love God. What is there in your life that is not either your heart, your soul, your mind, or your strength? Anything that touches money is your strength, and it's your heart, because you can't work for someone uh, without putting your heart into it. And anything that touches your academic pursuits or your spiritual life, if you will, your devotions, those are your mind and your heart. Your soul is obviously friendships, personality traits. Everything is summed up in the first commandment. And so it is a totalizing claim that Jesus says. You must love the Lord. And then he says, not only must you love the Lord, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commandments. But that being said, there is an internal consistency. And to understand John's argument in this chapter, we have to tie it to other places that John speaks about the commandments. It's not enough in this chapter for John to say that everyone in verse 2, that we love God and love our brothers as a fulfillment of the law, because that is not the only claim of the law. Tied up in and summarizing the law is the commandment to believe in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, when he's asked this question, he, he's teaching and he says, do not, in John 6, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. How true is that? You, believer, are not supposed to live your life just to gain dollars. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of the Man will give to you. So Jesus here is the king. He's feeding his people. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. That is, God the Father has put on Jesus a seal. That is, a a sign or a stamp or a seal on the person and work of Jesus that all who would be approved by God are going to come through Christ. Verse 28, it says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Hear this carefully. The Jews had begun to move away from the true worship of Yahweh into a false idol, a false cult, a false teaching. That is, we will be perfected by doing the law. God did not command Israel to be justified before him by doing the law. It was his provision for a nation state and a people group to be identified by a set of cultural customs and and that involved true spiritual worship. But in no way does the scriptures teach that the Old Testament Christians were saved by completing the law fully. That is a dispensational idea. It's an idea that is not found in the Bible themselves, in the scriptures themselves. And in fact, every place that that idea is asserted, all you have to do is move back to a narrative or to a covenantal understanding to see that the law was given as a means of grace. What happened before the law was given? God brought Israel out of the exodus, uh, out of Egypt through the exodus. What happened before God told Adam to watch over the garden? Well, first he made Adam and he gave him a wife, and he planted a garden in the east of Eden, and he set up boundaries, and he, he gave a law. And so before the law comes, grace comes. So, so the old covenant Christians were never justified by the law, but the, at the time of Jesus, many of their teachers had begun to trust in doing the law. That's what Paul that's what Paul means when he's talking about how he came out of Judaism. He's he's written away his rights and and all of his certifications. They've become as nothing to him. Paul's basically saying, "I've come out of that form of idolatry which took the law and made it try to do something that it could never do and it wasn't intended to do." And so here these people are asking Jesus a very important question. What must we do to do the works that God requires us? They're asking how to be justified. They're not just talking about, uh, is it important to do the law? Is Is it not important to do the law? Should we go off and do these other mysterious works? They're asking in this question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is Jesus's response? It is not go tithe mint and cumin. It is this, verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. So that being said, the Judaizers are completely without any sort of claim because what Jesus is saying is in order to even do the law, even if you did it by the power of the spirit, even doing it by the grace of God, it would include 
believing in the one whom he sent. Jesus is saying all of the law was written in a veiled way, and now that I'm here, it's now evident that part of doing the works of God, that is doing what God's will is, which his law is an expression of his will, is to believe in the one who he sent. So, that being said, John here is saying, not only can, do you have to love the, uh, love the Father, and also you have to love your brothers, but you cannot do that, you cannot fulfill the law without loving Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so mysterious. If you read verse 2, 3, and 4, uh, and 5, it doesn't make any sense unless they're the same thing. Fulfilling the law, fulfilling God's will, is now loving Jesus Christ and believing on the one whom he's sent. So, Jesus himself says that unless one follows after Christ, you can't even do the works of God. So, those who wish to be justified by doing the law could never do that because it requires you to not be justified by the law. When Jesus says to believe in the one whom he sent is to place your trust. If God has set his seal why haven't you set yours? That's basically what Jesus is saying. If you're still trusting in the works of the flesh, that is making yourself righteous before God, then you are not actually doing the law. The law requires you to not be justified by doing the law, but rather to believe in the Son of God. Now, that may seem obtuse, but I think it's very important to understand what, what John is saying. He's saying it is a categorical impossibility to perform the law and to reject Christ, because the law is now revealed as believing in Jesus, trusting upon Christ. So John, in previous chapters, as we've looked the last few weeks, he's warring against the Gnostics, but it becomes even clearer that he's also warring against the Judaizers, those who are coming in and saying, no, you must go back and do this thing called circumcision to be rightly related to God. You must do this thing called abstaining from sinful meats in order to be holy, to be God's people. So John opposes that line of, of thinking. He opposes that teaching because the Judaizers also were also saying, you know, if Jesus is not enough, then really Jesus is not your righteousness. There's an additional righteousness that's needed. First John 5, 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What John's, what John's saying is the, true, the two spiritual dangers of that age are there is a secret spirituality apart from Christ. There's another form of righteousness that we need to attain to, which is Gnostic teaching. And then the other one is, even though Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, there's some other things that you need to do to be, to be judged as righteous. That is the greatest danger of our day, is these other things we need to do. The self-help thing, the performance thing, all of those ideas which are so uh, invasive, they're so ethereal, they're hard to pin down often, it's hard to diagnose when you're operating in those ways. Those are the other things that John is saying are the enemies of the Christians in the world. And so those who have the faith that Jesus is their only righteousness, and apart from Jesus, they have no hope, everyone who has that faith has overcome the world. They've won the battle. That is the battle over your life. In verse 5, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
So that is the true battle, is whether or not you rely on Jesus Christ and trust that he is the only Son of God and that there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. And then John moves from this discussion saying that faith in Christ is necessary over to a discussion of the water and the blood. Unlike Moses, who brought Israel out of Egypt through water alone, Christ, by instituting the washing of repentance, that is baptism, and the shedding of his own blood, which has accomplished a great salvation, and it testifies. So Moses, if you remember, he brought Israel through the Jordan. And what, what I mean by through water, just like John said earlier in his gospel, we have all received um, uh, of, of God grace upon grace, for, for the law was revealed through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John is picking up that metaphor that he's already used, and he's saying in these verses, verses, verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And then that's the meaning of that phrase, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Jesus both was born into the world through his mother's womb, which is a, if you will, a type of Genesis one, the the sphere that is full of water, and there, and God is fashioning and forming things in there. And then also he came by the blood. Likewise, Jesus himself was water baptized, though he did not need it for the remission of sins, but as to be a first uh, prototype or a forerunner for those who would come after. And also he died on the cross, shedding his blood. And so the waters of repentance, the true fact that Jesus is a real human, he is not an ethereal spirit, he really was born, and he really did suffer and shed his own blood, as we sang about this morning, those two witness to us. And they become for us signs and seals of Jesus's uh, atonement being effective for us. When we go through the waters of baptism, we do it in faith, knowing that we are dying with Christ. Likewise, it, the, the scriptures, specifically Hebrews, say that our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood, just like the high priest would sprinkle on the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. So we've both been washed and been sanctified by Jesus' blood. And then it says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. They all are harmonizing. So as you remember, every fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the Holy Spirit, John says, gives his amen in the hearts of the hearers of the gospel, wherever judgment against sin and full free mercy through the shedding of Christ's blood is proclaimed. What, what John means by the water and the blood testifying is you need to be baptized and you need to have Christ atone for you because that is the judgment against sin. That is, before you can come into God's people, you need to be washed. And God washes us and brings us into the people of God through baptism. Likewise, it was required that Christ shed his blood for you. So, in this way, this, the Holy Spirit gives his amen to these things. And he says these three, three things are the, the things that testify about Jesus being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the final sending from God to his people. He goes on to say in verse 8 and 9, uh, if, in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that, ha that he is born concerning his son. 
He puts to death all claims of the Judaizers that there is another thing that you need to have before you're righteous before God. So because of that, <clears throat> John is, is very bold, and he goes on to say um, that anyone, verse 10, anyone or whosoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. He's saying all those who reject God are rejecting not only a propositional truth or a free offer of grace, but they are accusing God of lying because the three things, the testimonies that are given by God, which establish according to the law, a true valid testimony to establish a fact that those three things are lying. They are accusing God of bearing false witness in a spiritual court. In, on the cosmic uh, throne room, if you will. That is, God has demonstrated righteousness by sending his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, and to redeem all those who by their own sin were trapped under the law by the shedding of his blood. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. And so John is saying here in this place that if you do not receive the testimony of God concerning that Jesus has finally come and we are not awaiting a further Messiah, then that means that you make God out to be a liar. A very serious claim indeed. So John here is now going on and saying that this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this is the life in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is no more clear than that, believer, though you live in a godless age, which would ask you to compromise and to affirm equally valid all faiths, John the Apostle has written clear to you, and you should not move away from it. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We should be friendly with those of other faiths, but we should not give in and, and cower before the spirit of the age, which says all faiths are equally valid. How can you, how can you say that and then begin to proselytize or to share your faith? There would be no point in affirming that doctrine and then witnessing about your faith. There would be no way to give a defense after making that claim. And so John here is saying that I have given a faithful testimony, but the apostolic testimony is not mine alone, but there are also three who testify apart from us. That is, in the previous chapters, he says that we know that anyone who listens to us is truly a child of God. He moves beyond that argument in the previous chapter, also discussing the love of the brothers, to this argument here that there are three who testify, the word, uh, sorry, the, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So John is saying that if you do not have the son, you do not have life. And then he kind of tips his hand. If you're ever playing poker or, or some sort of card game, tipping your hand is accidentally showing uh, your playbook or um, revealing your strategy, if you will. John gives us an intimate glimpse into why he's writing these things in such a bold and beautiful way. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What a great and beautiful idea. We've seen last week that John commends us to strong assurance in the faith when we see the love of God overflowing to our neighbor. And John also here explains the purpose for his writing, saying that it's, it's not just a past, this isn't just 
any old letter that arrives at the church. This is a true spiritual mission that John has. He, he writes so that they would have eternal life, knowing the things about the Son of God. And because eternal life is knowing the Father, John is saying that knowing the Father is only possible by knowing the Son. Of course, agreeing with his gospel. When Jesus is testifying in the, of himself, he says that those who come to the Father only do by me, and there is no one who comes to the Father unless he first comes through the Son. And so, John, this idea being explained not just with John's epistles, but the other writings, that is, other scripture near John's epistles, has the exact same purpose. It is a means of grace. It is a specific delivery vehicle which imparts true knowledge of Christ to the heart of the believer. John here is saying that the reason he's writing is so that you would have eternal life. Certainly, eternal life is a grace of God. Therefore, it is a practical, spiritual means. Remember earlier when I said it's an error to read your Bible to be justified before God? It is an error to think that you need to check off your list every day, and that by doing that enough, you'll earn God's love. That is a heresy. That is an error. That is, that is a repudiation of the gospel. And if you live in that way, you have not put your faith on Jesus. You are putting your faith on yourself. Likewise, in responding to that error, if you throw your Bible in a closet and it is dustier than your wedding suit, uh, you probably are not responding in righteousness. You're responding and you're, the pendulum has swung too far and you're now breaking the clock entirely. If you... If you do not read scripture in order to have eternal life, that is, you read scripture just to justify yourselves, that's wrong. But if you don't read scripture because of fear of operating in legalism, also wrong. This is why I say the Christian life is a, deep, a deeply troubling ethical system. It is not possible for you to do this in your own way. Verse 14 and 15, uh, John also says prayer. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that he, we have asked of him. So likewise, eternal life is found by reading the writings of John, and, and therefore by extension all the writings of the apostles, and by extension building upon the faith of the apostles, the prophets, and Moses, reading those things in order to see the Son of God through what is written faithfully, we have eternal life. But also we know that we have eternal life when we have prayers that are answered in faith. Whenever, believer, you have a prayer that is supernaturally answered, take that as a bedrock of foundation. Of course, your foundation for your life, of course, is Christ. But building upon that foundation, the assurance that you should have comes from knowing Christ, the confirming witness of the Holy Spirit, as we saw last chapter, seeing Jesus beautifully in the scriptures, and also hear the answering of prayer that otherwise would have been an impossibility. John is saying, if we know that he hears us, we know that, that we have the requests. And then when we see it take place, it's deep confirming assurance. So because he's telling Christians to pray, he gives a little warning here. Now, this is a very troubling passage to some, especially weaker believers or younger, younger brothers, and I want to just very briefly, because we're very close to the striking of the hour, I want to very briefly say what this is not 
and say what it is definitively without equivocation. God listens to his children, therefore we are to be wise concerning what we pray for. That's why the next passage is included. John saying, pray, ask for things, but he then gives a warning. In verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now we're just going to address verse 16 and then we'll move over to verse 17. But John here is saying that sins not leading to destruction are those sins which are made war against. That is the sins that you commit How do you know that those are not sins that are ultimately indicating you are on your way towards death and destruction? Well, those sins are the sins that are warred against. So if you see a brother sinning, you are supposed to pray. One of the greatest dangers in a community-style church is to never pray that that your brothers and sisters would repent from the sins that you know about. If you, if you share, if you gossip, that certainly is not right. But what is also not right is to just see your brother's ox heading into a pit and do nothing about it. Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically from the law. When you see your brother's affairs uh, going off into destruction, that is, his life is becoming increasingly uh, catastrophic, there are ba- there's bad fruit, etc., uh, etc., et if you don't pray for your brother then you are not following the writings of the apostle. John says that you should pray and that God will give him life. That prayer, when, when God grants him grace, it is like life from the dead for that person, right? If anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, in a spirit of gentleness, restore such a brother looking unto yourself, lest you be tempted. A reason to pray for your brothers is it's very often the case. As soon as you see a sin in someone else, you are there in a week or a few days or an hour. We are to pray for our brothers and sisters, but John says, I do not say that one should pray for the sin leading to death. What, what I believe John is meaning here is that there is a type of sinning that is being done unto death, as in the fruit of destruction is so evident in this person's life that <clears throat> John is saying that a believer should not lend his support into the reparation of that brother who is wayward. This exactly is the state of heart that Jesus talks about in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a state of heart in the supposed brother that is a persistent, willful rejection of the Holy Spirit, an abdication of one's responsibility to follow God's commands, calloused resistance of friendly rebuke and conscience, and an apathetic dismissal of God's word. When Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven under heaven except the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what he is saying is all sin is forgiven except for those sins which are blasphemies against the Spirit. So what we must understand is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something you can do on a Friday or on a Wednesday at 6 o'clock. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a state of being which is sinful, it is a sin, in that you are not seeking mercy or repentance any longer. And what is so beautiful when you read uh, on a long-term perspective is that Paul himself says he was the chief of sinners, and he was very guilty of that sin of blasphemy. 
he was accusing Jesus of being accursed. Paul for sure was saying, along with the Pharisees at that point, where Jesus is rebuking them, who they were saying that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. What, what they have done is a moral inversion. They're saying that the son of God is actually the son of the devil. And that rather than the spirit of God being the one who is doing these deliverances from demons, that Satan himself is doing these false signs. And so this is the type of heart that is rejecting God's spirit. He, he or she is rejecting God's word or command. So young believers, when you see a phrase that says, there is a sin that leads to death, do not fear if you are still afraid. Only fear if you cannot be afraid. What I mean by that is the heart that is afraid of blaspheming the spirit is indicating a sign of grace that that sin is not a sin leading unto death, which is what John says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. That is, if you believer are doing sins, that's wrong. But then he says, there is a sin that does not lead to death. He's talking about types of sins here and, and the heart position behind those sins. If you are just living your life unto yourself, you've fallen away from the faith, you do not receive input, you reject the Holy Spirit, you spurn and despise the Holy Spirit's leadings and promptings like Saul did. If you are in that direction, then your sin is leading unto death. It is pointing that you are headed on this path and you have no intention of changing. And the point of Jesus saying that the only sin which will not be forgiven are those sins which are not repented of, the sin of blasphemy, is to say that even though that's true, Paul did that. Paul was the one who in the scriptures we see, even though God has said he's given mighty warnings to not reject the Holy Spirit, to not spurn his uh, you know, um, condemnation or the the judgments by the Holy Spirit against sin, but rather to listen to them and to repent. Paul is a manifestation of the fact that God's grace is mighty indeed. He was one who was blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and yet God brought him grace. So, uh, don't worry if you are still afraid. Only be afraid if you're not afraid. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God... Uh, does not keep on sinning, but he who is born, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Likewise, John says uh, in it, Jesus in John's gospel describes the sheep that the Father has given him are in his hand, and no one can snatch them away from him. So God protects those who are truly his, and then verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so John is um, summarizing his teaching with this final triad. We remember from last week, we talked about triads, a form of three statements in a row that are mutually uh, interrelated. Here, John is saying at the closing of his book and epistle here, he's saying that these three things, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that we are from God and the whole world is from the devil. And that finally, we know that the son of God has come. Those three things are a uh, a triad. They're, they're a couplet of three, a triad. 
And this is the final summary of John's epistle. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. The apostles and those who listen to the apostles are from God. Everyone else is from the devil. And then finally, the Son of God has come and enlightened us in the truth. Do you see how this is going against Gnosticism and Judaism at the same time? In in the second one is the apostles are from God and those who listen to the apostles, not some other new spiritual teaching that you need to find. And then verse, or the third idea that the Son of God has truly come, not that we are waiting for a future Messiah or we need something else to be righteous. Finally, John closes his letter with an injun- injunction against idols. An injunction, if you don't know, is just a strong prohibition. It's a warning. It's a command to not do something. He commands us to be on guard against ourselves from idols. So he's been dealing in this, in this entire epistle, be on the guard against the spirit of the age. Be on guard against those who say you need something other than Christ. But finally, he says to be on guard over your own heart against your, your own tendency to go after idols. Now, the question is, is this a non sequitur? As in, does it not follow from the previous discussions? I believe strongly that it does, though it is not often clear what he's meaning. Little children, keep yourselves from idols is the closing of his letter. And from this, I gather a few things that we must understand, and then we will partake in the Lord's Supper. John's been talking about the love of neighbor, trusting in Christ, walking in the light, and he caps it off with a keeping, keep yourself from idols. That's kind of weird if you think about it. But I think that as, as we saw last week, when we saw John saying for us to test the spirits, remember we said it wasn't this kind of ethereal wandering through the world, looking for demons or staring up into the sky with your spiritual stud finder, kind of hoping to land on a demon or on a spirit that is against Christ. We saw that John is saying to test the doctrines or to test the spirit behind the message. And, and so every spirit that does not confess Christ is not born of God, or it doesn't come from God. It's an anti-Christ, anti-apostle spirit. Those things are what he's saying. Test yourself. Test the spirits. Make sure you're not buying into this. John, I believe, is saying that the false doctrines of the Gnostics and the Judaizers are doctrinal idols, which we exalt over and above the truth of Christ. The Judaizers are saying you need to be circumcised in order to be righteous. Christ is here for you, believer, but you need to follow God's law and not eat pork or shellfish or whatever. Uh, Those things to reestablish the law over and above Jesus Christ as our righteousness. Likewise, we're not to join in with the circumcision party who have exalted their interpretation of the law. Notice I don't say that they have exalted the true interpretation, but rather their interpretation of the law over and against God's revealed righteousness. That is Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and took on your penalty on the cross, who shed his blood so that you could be washed clean. That is what God's righteousness. In a way, John is saying that even though the match has been won, the race has not yet been run. Listen carefully. The match has been won by Jesus Christ. His work is complete. On the cross, he said, in the hearing of all of Jerusalem, it is finished. And yet, we know from the epistles, Paul says, I don't consider myself to have yet attained it. Likewise, I pursue on so that I would finish well. I would run the race that's set before me. 
I think John is saying at the end of this chapter, at the end of this epistle, this injunction to keep ourselves against idols, I believe, is him saying, though all these truths are established, though God has sent his son, though the spirit is confirming in your heart, he says, still be on guard. Guard yourself against idols. I think John is saying that though Christ has died, Christ has risen, he will come again one day, you and I are still on this path and we need to be guarding over our hearts. So let's pray and commune with the Lord. Father, we thank you for the writings of John. We ask that you would give us a great foundation of assurance, not only that you, Father, have sent your son Jesus, but that also through the washing of our sins in baptism, you've brought us into a people and that by the giving of your spirit, that we, ha- we know confidently in our heart because the Spirit himself testifies concerning the validity of the claims of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would wash our conscience from every dead work, that you would give us faith that is true and vibrant, that we would see your word as beautiful, Lord, that you would teach us as we've learned to look at how John writes and to see how all the other writers weave in beauty faithfully recording, of course, what you have done in history, and yet also at the same time recognizing your sovereignty in leading and guiding them to write with skill and with excellence. We pray that we would not fall into any error in idolatrizing the word, but Lord, that we would also not in rejection of that idol of reading your word for righteousness, that we would not go in the opposite direction and ignore your word completely. I pray, Lord, that you would give us mighty, mighty confidence in the true gospel, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, of which we are the foremost. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.